0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Pacific islands are um, kind of nightmarish to an ecologist. Uh, I'm not an ecologist, but I was trained as one 50 years ago. So I go to places that everybody wants to go in a door, like Galapagos. Uh, I'm bummed out, because it just looks so depauperate compared to continental land life. Uh, you know, there's uh, like half a dozen kinds of birds and half a dozen kinds of plants, it looks like, and then these little red crabs everywhere. And that's about it. Uh, even I go to Hawaii, which is paved with invasive species, but there's still no snakes, no lots of things. And then, about seven years ago, I went to Easter Island. And my wife, who was not trained as an ecologist, was trained as an art historian. uh, We spent three days there. As we got back in the plane, she said, oh, I get it. Ecological collapse can really happen. And it's really awful. Easter Island uh, depresses you as soon as you get off the plane. There's wonderful people there, it's an amazing scene, Uh, the statues are astounding, but it's hard not to get into kind of the mode of this short, of, wow, who created, who did this crime? Who destroyed the life here? And that's been the nature of the question for a long time, And most of the people looking at it, many of the people, anthropologists, biologists, and so on, who looked at Easter Island, looked at it through that question. And it was the wrong question. The wrong question is, what's actually there? In the people, in the stories, in the language, in the ground, in the data that you can collect from the place itself. And then you wind up with a different question, which is what... Our speakers tonight have. Please welcome Terry Hunt and Carl Lippo. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Good evening. Uh, I'm Carl Lippo.
2: Good evening. I'm Terry Hunt. Uh, we'd like to uh, thank Long Now Foundation and Stuart Brand for tonight's invitation. Well, <clears throat> Ever since uh, Easter Sunday in 1722, when the first Europeans accidentally discovered this island, it's uh, really uh, drawn the, the, the attention, it's really created a dilemma for explorers and scientists, and today a very large number of tourists. Really in comparison to the rich islands of Polynesia that we're used to thinking about, uh, places like Hawaii and, and uh, Tahiti, Easter Island is a very poor island, and yet it's an island that has some of the world's greatest monuments on it. Um, Today, the island is called Rapa Nui, and we'll probably go back and forth between calling it Rapa Nui and Easter Island. Well, this island has no streams, it has no forest, but it's a poor, windswept island that's different than any other Polynesian island. Um, And from the mid-18th century, sailors, explorers, Christian missionaries, Uh, consistently commented on the poor state of this island and its native inhabitants. Um, It became, in this way, a mysterious place. Well, Rapa Nui is isolated. This is it for thousands of miles, this tiny island. But it was here on Rapa Nui, more than a thousand miles from other Polynesian islands and almost 3,000 miles from the coast of South America, and apparently, without influence from any other culture, that a prehistoric society evolved and produced the greatest monuments and feats of engineering in Polynesia, and for that matter, uh, anywhere in the world. The island is small; it's only about six by ten miles in size. And for comparison, here we are in San Francisco, and there is Rapa Nui superimposed um, on our on our location tonight. Well. Given this tiny island and its remote location, its poor environment, there are some, we have some of the most amazing examples of human achievements. Rapa Nui Moai, these are the, this is the name for the multi-ton statues, some measuring more than 20 meters in height and weighing more than 75 tons, were carved out of a quarry on the island and transported several miles over the island's rugged terrain. They, they reach about every corner of the island. These statues were then placed on impressive platforms that that are called Ahu. This whole story really cries out for explanation. All of this investment in statues and monuments on a a really poor island. The Moai were religious statuary, and they're like those found elsewhere in Polynesia. And had the society just carved a few of these statues, we probably wouldn't be surprised, because um, there are other statues in Polynesia. But by our own count, They carved about 900 of these statues and more than 400 of them were transported over rugged terrain reaching every corner of the island. Nowhere else in Polynesia had this happened. The big question then becomes, why did it happen on Rapa Nui, an island where people should have been focused on where to find their next meal, not on building big statues? The question also becomes, how could a poor society have produced such impressive monuments? The question becomes, were people more numerous in the past? Were there greater resources? If this was the case, what happened? When did it happen? And why did it happen? These all would become the so-called mystery of Easter Island.
1: You can can readily appreciate when you look at these statues why it might be a mystery. I mean, here's this tiny little place in the middle of nowhere with just mind-boggling archaeology. It just outstrips any kind of archaeology that you find anywhere nearly anywhere in the world, uh, maybe in comparison to Egypt or something like that. Uh, but it's on this tiny little island in the middle of the Pacific. So it's just sort of clearly a mystery. Um, well, this, this mystery would have just remained sort of a curiosity uh, to, to, to you know, some researchers and maybe you know, late-night television. Uh, but it's, its message has really gone beyond that uh, as it's become a, a message about today, uh, a, t- a message about what could happen to us, uh, to the world, um, if, if we're not careful, um, and as, in this way, Rapa Nui has been uh, uh, offered up as an example of a society that overexploited its resources and it destroyed itself. Uh, really, saying that these statues' construction here is, is is clearly more than the than the island could possibly support, and thus uh, what we see in the environment there in the island uh, is is the result of this um, of this overexploitation. Jared Diamond, most famously, is, is, is argued about this and describes this activity as ecocide uh, for ecological suicide. And, and basically, this, this, this ecological suicide model um, forms a, a narrative, a, a, a sort of a, what we call the collapse story. Um, and, and the collapse story kind of goes like this. Polynesians settled the island um, somewhere between 400 and 800 A.D. Uh, centuries later, a bunch of elites gained control of the island uh, with a population that had grown really large, uh, too large for the island itself. Competition between these elites uh, took over um, and, and, and these elites you know, competed for each other for power and prestige. Uh, they, to, in order to, to compete, they directed a whole bunch of energy and, and, and uh, uh, effort into constructing these giant monuments uh, and, and, and sort of formed a cult. Basically, people have called Moai Madness or Moai Mania. Uh, this practice continued until it literally took down the island's fragile ecology and reduced the population to the poor state uh, that Europeans founded in in the 18th century. So that's the that's the story that um, that sort of is the collapse narrative, and, and I'm sure most of you have heard this or in one way or the other. It's become very very famous and very very powerful. It's a message to us saying. Wow, this is terrible. You know, look at this amazing archaeology, but look what it did to the world. We don't want to live in a world that we've done this to, uh, so we should take this as a warning. Now, this story, while it you know, really has a modern message, um, is an old one. It isn't something that was just you know, cooked up... Uh, uh, by Diamond um, it isn 't in something from the 60s. It actually goes back to the earliest Europeans who arrived on the island uh, in the in the eighteenth century. Uh, Cook, for example uh, this this drawing here comes from Cook era uh, about seventeen seventy four um, and and when he was there his, his, his naturalist george forrester um, you know, looked in this island and he realized that something is wrong here. This place is, something is really terrible, must have happened here. And he argued that these people must have been much more numerous to account for all this archaeology, all this spectacular set of statues, and they must have been at one time much more opulent and happy, um, and certainly more happy than the depiction that they have of this, skeletal figure uh, on on the drawing here. Um, Later on, and this this message is sort of repeated over and over again from this first European uh, encounter, uh, La Perouse, a French explorer who was there in 1786, suggested that the, he says, the present unfortunate condition of the Easter Islanders was due to the imprudence of the ancestors who at some very distant time in the past had cut down their one natural resource, a dense forest. This imprudence in destroying Easter island, destroying their forest uh, forms the foundation of a lot of what we think we know about the island. Uh, it's directly behind the account of Rapa Nui as the site of some kind of prehistoric catastrophe.
2: Well, modern research would confirm that there was once a dense palm forest on the island, literally millions of palms. And this would lead some to speculate that uh, um, people had removed the forest, foolishly removed it, to uh, <clears throat> provide the thousands of logs that were needed to move the giant statues across the island from the quarry to the shorelines. <clears throat> Diamond would suggest that more trees would have to be cut down uh, for additional agricultural fields to feed all of the uh, thousands of workers who were forced to make and move these giant statues. The slide you see here, or these are the existing, uh, Jubea chalensis palm trees on the mainland, they are either the same species or are closely related to the extinct Rapa Nui palms. Well, according to Diamond, the population on Rapa Nui exploded, reaching more than 15,000 people, maybe even 25 or 30,000 people. The forest disappeared and agriculture failed. Together, these two factors, uncontrolled population growth and over-exploitation of the land, resulted in a drop in the island's carrying capacity. Well, to make matters worse, the loss of forests meant that the islanders could no longer make canoes, according to Diamond and others, uh, canoes to use for deep-sea fishing. As well, without seaworthy vessels, the excess population could not be sent off in search of new land, as they had done in other islands elsewhere in the Pacific. In essence, the ancient Rapa Nui people were marooned on an island that they had impoverished by their own, to use La Perusa's term, imprudent actions. Well, to sum this up, we can talk about collapse in five easy steps. Um, The island is initially covered with palm forest when people arrive. Population grows, it grows out of control, there's demand on resources. Uh, People develop this sort of competitive Moai mania. Uh, The trees are cut down to provide rollers for the statue. Um, The loss of trees results in an environmental catastrophe that influences the carrying capacity. People begin to starve with lack of resources. um, So they're engaged in warfare and they start eating each other. It's cannibalism and chaos. And all of this is supposed to happen before uh, European contact. And what the Europeans see then is the assumed result of what uh, modern writers have called collapse. Well, this has also been called Moai mania in some uh, modern writings, and it's even uh, portrayed in a popular Kevin Costner film. Um, Collapse has become a pretty popular narrative, and so has the notion of ecocide. According to Jared Diamond, increasing competition over the limited resources led to warfare, chaos, and cannibalism. This is said to have happened just before just before Europeans arrived in 1722. Um, and when they arrived in 1722, then they saw the remnants of a once thriving society that had destroyed its environment and thus destroyed itself. As Diamond put it, the islanders had committed ecocide. And he says that Rapa Nui is the clearest example of ecocide. Well, is this what really happened? We went to the island in 2001 to begin fieldwork, and we believed that this story was essentially correct. We went there believing that we were going to cross a few T's, dot a few I's, and sort of fill in some of the details of this uh, case study of environmental ruin and cultural collapse. We began intensive fieldwork, and within about four to five years, uh, after we'd been doing so much fieldwork, a lot of the story that we understood from Diamond and, and other scholars that he had borrowed from, that story was really falling apart, it was sort of disturbing and sort of exciting all at the same time. For example, let, let us tell you a few, a few of the points here that, that don't add up. Around the island you see fallen statues like you see in this slide. Um, these were supposedly toppled in intertribal warfare that was supposed to have occurred around 1680 AD, before Europeans arrived in 1722. Well, a quick look at historic illustrations sort of shows a problem with this, because lots of historic illustrations actually show standing statues. They show platforms in good states of repair. Um, And this makes you wonder, well, wait a minute. When were the statues knocked over? If Europeans are illustrating them, even measuring them and talking about them. We realized there was something wrong with the idea that all of this happened before Europeans arrived if Europeans are seeing uh, standing statues. Well, we have a nearby reminder at Stanford University. Um, This is a photograph from 1906 after the great San Francisco earthquake. And uh, this is Louis Agassiz. And I think the Stanford, if I recall, I think the Stanford uh, uh, website has the caption here that um, it was said that uh, Louis Agassiz was okay in the abstract, but not so great in the concrete. (laughs) Well, we're not talking about Louis Agassiz tonight, but this is a great reminder that statues fall in earthquakes, and uh, they end up in the concrete in earthquakes. And actually, research on Rapa Nui has shown that many of the statues and the platforms they're on have damage and orientation of the statues consistent with earthquakes that could have uh, toppled the statues uh, following European contact. So perhaps there's an alternative explanation, as there are for many things on the island. Well, these are the so-called weapons of mass destruction. These are stemmed obsidian tools. um, And the conventional argument is that These proliferate, and they were used uh, in all of this intertribal warfare. Well, there's another little problem here, because multiple studies looking at literally hundreds of these artifacts show that when you look under a microscope, the use-wear on the edge of this tool uh, shows that they were used for cutting and scraping plant materials not for slicing each other, et cetera. And Carl and I would often say, wait a minute, if, uh, if these are weapons, the first guy who invented a pointed one would rule the island. Um, and so these kind of blunt instruments uh, might have been weapons of mass irritation, but they were really for uh, cutting and scraping plant materials, as, uh, as the science shows. Well, we can go elsewhere in Polynesia. This is the neighboring island, about 1,000 miles away, of Rapa Iti in the Australs. Eti is a very small island, very mountainous island. And its uh, ridges, the steep ridges on the island you see here, are actually covered in fortifications. There are about 20 fortifications, places where people would uh, uh, take refuge during times of conflict. So even on a small island with lots of warfare, people build forts, um, like they did in New Zealand. And so we know that in Polynesia, when people are engaged in warfare, a lot of them will build fortifications and develop weaponry and so on. So when when warfare is taking place, uh, we see the evidence of it very clearly. The great uh, rendition there of Maori uh, warfare uh, in a place that had a lot of warfare. But none of this on Rapa Nui. Rapa Nui doesn't have fortifications. uh, But there would be places to build them if, in fact, you were engaged in lots of warfare. Well, really... We're going to, jump to uh, sort of jump to our, our punchline here before we talk about a lot else and tell you that there was a collapse on Rapa Nui. It occurred as a consequence of European contact beginning in 1722. It began with epidemic disease, uh, which was common in the Pacific Islands, common in the New World. It's a familiar story of introducing Old World disease to non-immune populations and losses are 80-90% plus. Um, Not an unfamiliar story, and ironically, one that uh, Professor Diamond has written about in an award-winning book. Well, interestingly, um, this begins to shape the impressions of the island. In 1774, when Cook is on the island, he writes about, and we revisit this slide, he writes about things like, where are all the people? Where are the children? Where are the women? Why are there skeletons scattered around the surface of the island? When you put this in the perspective of old world disease and the epidemics that occurred in the Pacific, we are probably seeing the aftermath of a visit four years, just four years earlier, with the visit of the Spanish, who stayed on the island about 10 days, would have introduced disease, and left not knowing what they had done, Cook arrives, not understanding what has happened, sees the the carnage of epidemic disease and begins to speculate about, there must have been more people, what happened here, etc. Well, to make matters worse, uh, slave raiding began in 1803 and continued through the 19th century. The message here is that uh, the idea of ecocide really now enjoys popular acceptance, but there was a near genocide that occurred on Rapa Nui um, that really ravaged the population and the culture as a result of European contact. And it is ironic, it's sad, it's it's angering, that the victims of cultural and physical extermination are now being uh, charged as perpetrators of their own demise. Well, what we would discover then is that there was simply no evidence that there was a pre-European collapse. Uh, Collapse occurred as a consequence of European arrival. This meant that there were going to be a lot of other questions to answer because much of what we believe was turning out not to be true, and so our research would begin to delve into those things.
1: Once we started to to see that, in fact, the evidence that sort of framed the entire story behind Easter Island just didn't exist, we had to sort of rethink what does everything mean? What's going on here? You know, what what are these statues all about? Um, and we really started to, to to do that. So I think, well, if 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 there were never twenty-five thousand people here, um, and there never was a collapse then what is that, how could the statue has been moved? Our, the assumptions that we have about populations being high and low and what must have been in order the statues to have been there sort of fall apart. We have to sort of rethink from the beginning. And that's what we started to do. We started to think, well, if, if, if um, maybe there wasn't a collapse, uh, but maybe there used to be a lot more people. But for some reason, maybe the numbers that Rogovin in 1722, which he noted about 4,000 people on the island, uh, maybe his were everyone was hiding, or there were a lot more people at that time. Uh, but they were hiding, and you know later on they died as part of this collapse, uh, the, the disease collapse. Um, so we had to relook at all the, these um, these questions, and we started to look at so how many people does it take to move a statue? Does it really take thousands of people cutting down millions of trees uh, to that? Brings down a society and the ecology of the entire island as the traditional story tells us. Initially, though, uh, when we first got there, and within the model of, of, of sort of looking at the class, we kind of avoided this question. We really didn't, in fact, we agreed amongst ourselves not to talk about statues anywhere uh, because there's just too much craziness <laughs> going on. And anytime you venture in there, it becomes speculation land, and then, you know, you're arguing about people about, you know, what kind of alien was it? And, you know, <laughs> did they use lasers or, you know, hovercrafts and, you know, whatever. So, but there is actually a literature, and we started to look at this, in de- you know, a little bit, saying, well, you know, well, tell us, let's think about the technology that must have been the traditional technology that was there. And when you look at uh, sort of the, the general... Uh, gamut of things that people say were used in moving the statues, they tend to sort of focus around the same kinds of things. In some way, uh, some kind of wooden contraption was used, and here this is Heyerdahl showing off uh, a sledge that he sort of fabricated to demonstrate the kinds of things that mo- that he assumed must have been used in parting to move the statues. Um, in 2000, another uh, experiment uh, demonstrated that, yes indeed, statues can be dragged along on top of logs, uh, and so maybe logs were being used. Now the Log thing is really key to, to sort of is it connected to this collapse story? Because there's got to be a mechanism by which trees are being chopped down. Uh, either that's lots of people needing food, so have land clearance, or it's because the technology of moving the statues required the trees. And so there's a connection between statues and environmental destruction. So, uh, so we you know we, and again, the, what people had talked about sort of fits into that. and That's the way people have discussed it. Well, in our own work, we started to look at the. We wanted to look at the record itself. Let's just look at what is actually there on the ground, because that's really the ultimate way we're going to build some information that we can then try to explain uh, and try to build falsifiable hypotheses that we can, uh, you know, try to evaluate. Um, speculation and plausibility just don't cut it. So we started looking at the, the statues, and we started to do a systematic uh, survey of them and. Make photographs and measure them and, and, and describe them. Well, we looked across the island, and there were about a thousand statues. Really, an amazing number of statues on the island. But we, we noticed that there's actually three kinds of statues. There are statues in three kinds of locations. The blue uh, uh, dots there are all clustered together. Are statues that are at the quarry. The quarry is called Rano Raraku, uh, and it's a, a throat of a volcano. Uh, and the statues are carved from the from a volcanic. Uh, ash that's compressed there, and, and that's the source of them. So there's about 600 statues or so that are still at the quarry itself. And then there's statues that are on these ahu, these big platforms uh, that, that serve as base upon which statues were then put. Um, so those are the sort of the classic statues that, you, that people are familiar with. Uh, but there's also another kind of statue, and those are shown here in the red dots. Those statues are actually not at the quarry and never made it to the ahu. They're sort of in between. Uh, and and the, the, the details about the statue turn out to be really, really important. So in our work, uh, we, we carefully described these statues, mapped them, uh, uh, took measurements and tried to, to, to quantitatively evaluate uh, what these things looked at. I looked at variability, to see if that could tell us something about what must have been necessary for, uh, the, uh, that, that's reflected in the statues themselves, uh, that, that will tell us about them being moved. And by doing this, we we're able to create uh, sort of a, a general understanding of, of, of the statues themselves. Uh, first of all, it's important to, to uh, start where they come from because that tells us a little bit about the technology involved. The statues, I said, all come from this, this, uh, this one quarry source called Rano Roraku. Uh, it's located sort of in the, on, on the eastern, southeastern side of the island. And it's a big, uh, it's a sort of volcanic vent uh, that is basically composed of the compressed volcanic ash. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough... Um, and what you see here on the slide is uh, the cliff face that statues were carved out of, and then statues that are uh, being completed at the bases of of that hill there. Now, if you go up on the on the um, into the quarry itself, and I recommend everyone go to Rapa Nui and see this because it's really. Spectacular! I mean, it's archaeological Disneyland. Um, you actually see statues in the process of being constructed, uh, statues that were half done, statues just beginning, statues that are nearly completed, statues that were finished—all in hundreds of them in this one quarry spot. And you see statues uh, being carved right out of the bedrock, uh, and we can so we can study that and 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 see how they you know they were carving them. The landscape itself is Escher-like. I mean, it's a myriad of these statues all superimposed on each other being carved out of this cliff face. It's really spectacular. And when we look at the patterns there, we see that statues are basically carved with the face first, and then the body was outlined, and eventually uh, the carving was, was done underneath the statues, and then the statues were broken out of the bedrock and moved out. We can actually look at the technology itself. A lot of people, I've heard some speculation saying, well, there isn't a modern device known to be able to cut the hard stone of Easter Island. Well, it's ridiculous. Uh, we, we can look at the rock itself and see, in fact, peck marks that were made by prehistoric carvers uh, that shows exactly the technology that was used to carve these things. And in fact, we can look on the ground and see the, the, the hand axes that were used to peck the statues. These were done by people with local tools, local stuff that was there. Uh, And they were able to carve these things out. Um, When we look sort of past the the, uh, uh, quarry itself, um, we we can start looking at some of the landscapes across which the statues were moved. Uh, We did this both by doing survey on the ground, but also using satellite imagery uh, to sort of trace patterns and looking at landscapes that the statues moved across. And the statues that I mentioned that were not at the quarry and not at the Ahu turn out to actually be statues that are found along roads, uh, Moai roads, uh, features that were made by prehistoric uh, um, people in order to move statues. Um, And and in this satellite image here, we can actually see uh, the the path of a road uh, that was actually first described by Catherine Rutledge back in 1917, a British uh, archaeologist. By doing that, by looking at the satellite imagery, and then looking uh, and going onto the ground and doing land survey to make sure that what we saw on the satellite was actually prehistoric and related to statues, we're actually able to map uh, the pattern of roads across uh, of the island leading from Roraku out, branching out into the uh, Ahu across the island. Uh, we mapped about uh, what's 20, 30 kilometers of, of roads across the island. And what, they, what the interesting part about this is one is that these, these roads then are, the, are the, the paths across which statues were moved. And so the constraints and the, the slopes and the angles and the terrain across which were moved are, th- are, are problems that prehistoric people had to solve if they were going to move these statues. When we looked at the statues themselves that were located along these roads, we started to notice that there were some very clear features that distinguished these statues from everything else, and that these features of these road moai, these statues along the road, um, were telling us something about the way they must have been moved. First of all, we saw that the statues were often broken. I mean, not, you know, well, they... They Clearly, it was broken as though they, were, as they had fallen over. Now, one of the arguments about moving statues is that they were put on rollers and then scooted across the ground. Uh, and and the, the idea that they were broken and, and the heads were actually snapped off and rolled forward doesn't really fit that model, that if, the, if they fell off the, the, um, the cart or the, the sled, that wouldn't really break that way. Uh, there's certainly some force that must have been involved with snapping the moved head off. Mo- yeah. Yeah, moved horizontally. Yeah, so they are um, moved horizontally. And then we also noticed that in... Uh, um, uh, on the, when we looked on the roads as we were going up and down slopes, that the statues were, were, ori- were, were situated in ways that was non-random with respect to those slopes. What I mean by that is that when the slopes were going downhill, statues were tended to be almost you know, statistically uh, on their face. And when the, the roads were going uphill, leading away from the quarry, the statues were on their back. Now, this pattern alone it's sti- is statistically significant. Um, couldn't be explained by statues that were put on rollers that they're... There had to be something fallen down must have been involved because it's consistent with the patterns the the way that we find them. Then we also noticed that when we compared statues that were on the road with statues that made it to the Ahu, that there were some very big differences between them um, that you really needed to look at them side by side. Now the road Moai um, really had uh, some shapes that were different than the Ahu. They were were leaning forward, uh, uh, almost 14 degrees forward. Uh, now, this isn't ma- doesn't make any sense if you have a statue that you're going to put on a cart, why you would need to make it leaning forward, because the statues that are on the Ahu, once they get there, uh, the statues that are there are standing straight upright. There's, they're not leaning at all. The statues that are on the, uh, on the, on the road are also have a wider base. Uh, so if we look at the ratio between the shoulders and the base, uh, there's, a, there's a, a broader base relative to the shoulders. The ones in the Ahu are much more slimmer um, and, and have a much more narrow base. We can sort of compare a road and ahu moai here. Uh, the road moai is kind of, you know, a little bit chubby, leaning way forward, uh, while the ahu moai is standing upright. He's gone to the gym, and he's really looking buff and, and, and set. So, uh, you know, there's really some big differences here. And that, you know, there's no reason if, that, if, if they're on a cart that you would make one kind of moai in between one way and then take it off the cart and then change it in some other way. It didn't. We can't figure out why you do that. We also looked at the bases, and the bases are, are, are really interesting because they, they, they're made in a very specific way, and as the statues get larger and larger, the, the, the way in which the bases are shaped gets more and more constrained, as though there's something very important about the bases. The, these bases are shaped like Ds, giant D-shaped bases with a broad curved front edge, and what you see, the, statu- the, the base of the statue here on the bottom left uh, has a a flat back and sort of a rounded front edge. Um, and when we look at the sides of the, the statues themselves, we actually see breakage patterns uh, of big flakes being broken off the sides of the statues as though there's a lot of force being pushed straight up and down. Well, all this evidence together really points to a, a conclusion that we couldn't escape, that the statues were at one, at one point during transport in an upright position. There's just no way you can explain the way they fall, the way they break, uh, the way they're shaped, the way that they're... Um, uh, uh, oriented, in, in, other than the fact they must have been standing upright. There, there just doesn't, there isn't any other way to explain that. Well, using that to, all the evidence that we looked at, uh, their, their patterning, we, we are able to re, sort of reconstruct the, the general uh, way in which statues were moved. As I said, they were, they were all carved in the quarry, um, starting from the from bedrock that's high up in the cliff. So they start out at actually pretty high elevation. Um, the the statues are carved from the face and then slowly carved uh, underneath them. Uh, and eventually the, the, the statues are snapped off the bedrock um, so that they're separate, and then slid down the slope. Now, it's important. Some people ask, well, how do you get them out of the quarry? Well, in fact, they use gravity to slide them down. And what they did was slide them down into pits that are at the base of the quarry. And all the statues that you see out in front of Rano Araku in the quarry, and many of the statues that you see, the iconic ones that are, um, half-buried are statues that are in pits that were constructed prehistorically and then later filled in, either through erosion or purposefully. Uh, we don't know, but they were actually uh, from, you know, taken from the, 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 the high cliff and then slid down into these bases uh, so that they can be finished. Because one of the things as you're carving them, if you're, carving, if you're starting on the top and then working to the back, you've got to stand it upright so you can get to the backside to finish it off because the backs are actually shaped. Uh, otherwise, you're left with this flat plane uh, from when it was snapped off. Now, once they're in this uh, uh, pit, then they can then be moved out, and we think they're moved out in an upright position. They're moved down the roads, as we, as we saw. Uh, when we find the roads, when we find statues going, the, the roads are going downhill, the statues are on their face. When the, sta- when the uh, roads are going uphill, the statue's are on their back. The roads themselves are actually constructed uh, to help facilitate this movement uh, with some curb stones, filling in some of the low areas, carving out some of the high areas, uh, and then when they got to the ahu. This question always comes up, why, how did they possibly get them on top of the yahoo? In fact, they, just, they, they, they moved them upright up uh, on top of the yahoo and then turned them around. So it was a, entirely an upright position. Well, this became uh, the topic of, of a book we wrote, um, and uh, we thought, man, we've nailed this. We've solved this problem, you know, let's go retire. Uh, and, it's and physics. It's physics, you know, <laughs> that's just the way it has to be, and, and, and you know, plausibility and demonstrating it, and it, it, we didn't need, we figured this is, you know, we've done science and we've explained this. Uh, well, we got, in con- we got in contact with um, a, a, a somebody from, from National Geographic and Nova, and they said, wow, this is a great story. We really wanna, you know, document this and, and share this, uh, but we want you to actually move a statue. And we said, what? We, we've done that. We know how they're moved. I mean, like, like an airline pilot or, a, you know, um, an airline engineer, you, the airline engineer knows how the plane flies, but you may not want to, you know, have him fly it because the, how the plane flies and flying it are two different kinds of knowledge. And we can explain how statues are moved, but, you know, move them ourselves? You know, those are Don't ropes. Don't ask us, and, please. Yeah, we're, we're academics, you know, we're ropes and stuff. Well, they said, well, you know, it can't be TV unless you do it. And then we said, well, why not, how about a giant foam one, you know, because it's TV, you know, who's going to know? And they said, no, 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 it has, to be, it has to be real, you know. And we said, oh, no, you know. So we said, okay, well, uh, you know, we'll do this, but we have to do it the right way. And the way we, we knew it had to be done right was making a statue that was exactly like a road statue. All the previous attempts and sort of experiments that people have done were sort of grab sort of an average moai or a moai that was convenient uh, and those are actually Ahu moai, the ones that are that, you know, more common uh, and those statues that we found from our studies were statues that were standing upright and you know, made or fi- you know, fixed to be on top of the Ahu. They weren't made to move. So what we want to do is get a, a road moai and of course you can't really, no one is going to let us you know, go grab a road moai and start and you know, play with it, uh, because I'm certain, well, it, it would have broken and fallen down. Uh, so we had so we decided we had to make a, a, another copy of one, and we need to do it really accurately. So what we used a sort of cool, cool like, recent technology that now is free on the internet, uh, a structure from motion algorithms uh, that, that the software we use is called Photosynth. It's free Microsoft uh, sa- software where you can take a bunch of photographs uh, and then can put them together through this algorithm, and it creates a three-dimensional model. It's really cool, uh, and, and it's fun to play with. Uh, but we're actually able to create a really good uh, three-dimensional replica of a statue. And we built this, this mesh model and then turned that into some other kinds of surfaces. Uh, and then we fed that to an engineering company up in Cedro, Woolley, Washington. And they were able to, using this giant warehouse lathe, carve out a three-dimensional moai that had uh, something down to a thousandth of an inch uh, precision of the exact replica of the data that we sent them, which was an exact replica of a statue. We, we, um, it's a scaled thing. It isn't exactly the same size, but all the proportions are correct, and they use this giant Laid the lathe out this this plug, and then they created a, a, a fiberglass shell on top of that, uh, and that fiberglass shell then was filled with concrete, and then uh, a statue comes out of it, and and. Um, um, because it was TV, uh, they, sa- they said, They well, we said, well, let's just, you know, we'll go to Cedro Willie and we'll, you know, go play with it. And they're like, no, 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 you, We got to send it to Hawaii, you know. And We said, why? Well, it's Polynesian, uh, which was great for us. I mean, t- Terry didn't well, mind. Well, the, the filmmakers are from Minneapolis. Minneapolis. So and they were like, yeah. This was January and they're proposing and they're like, exactly. we got to get out of yeah, here yeah. Uh, <laughs> and get the. We Hawaii. understand in Hawaii. It's okay. <laughs> so... Uh, um, it's part of this NOVA documentary, uh, um, and if you go to uh, PBS, you can see the NOVA documentary. Um, there's, there's shots of us, you know, as they open the box, and we're like, holy crap, there's a giant, huge <laughs> statue here. Uh, and the statue, we ultimately called Hotu Iti, um, is a ten-foot-tall replica of a road statue weighing about five tons. Now, we picked ten feet mostly because we wanted something that was Clearly large enough that you couldn't fake, uh, and five tons seemed like huge to us. And in fact, it's incredibly dense. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, it's one of the most immovable objects you'll ever encounter. I mean, you know, there's no, there's, it's not foam, there's no pushing it and shoving it. Like, if you can't, if, if, you know, if you don't get it right, it's not going to move on its own.
2: And we thought five tons was sort of a good starter moai. Starter moai, yeah, it's sort of a... It was tough
1: yeah. anyway. Hey, we'll actually, see. it's about an, yeah, if you, the video... Uh, yeah, the TV documentary really goes through that. There's a lot of drama about making television, especially this kind of television, where they said, you have two days to do this. And, you know, we're like, what? And they, they wouldn't let us see the statue until, what, halfway through the first day. And then we spent a lot of time figuring out, where do you tie the ropes, you know, and how do you tie them, which direction they go, and how many people do you use, and how do you coordinate them, and trying to figure out all this stuff took, a, took actually quite a bit. And, and uh, it was a really dramatic ending because at about 4.30 on the second day, half hour before the crane was scheduled to take the Statue and put it where it was resting so it could drive off and he could go home. We finally figured this all out. All right. uh, and it was quite a, uh, 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 an ordeal. Um, and here I'll just show you what we ended up with. This is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, it became, it became remarkably easy once we figured it out. Uh, I mean, this is actually, uh, yeah, I mean, this was a lot of work to get to this point. But once we put the right pieces together, it really walked. You don't know So after, you know, thinking about how we were able to do what we did, and and there was a lot of systematic parts of it. The the documentary shows us sort of like we're randomly coming up with ideas, and it was was more systematic than. When when this happened, it was as you can imagine
2: from seeing it. It was really, really exciting.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean to see the thing goes from this immovable object to sort of dancing is just yep. magical, <laughs> and the way the, re, the reason why it was able to, we were able to transform it from this immovable solid thing that was just sitting there and frustrating us into something that literally, you know dances down the road is because of the way in which it was constructed, it's because of the prehistoric carvers who constructed it in such a way that enabled it to, to move. It took advantage of physics. And the way it did that, the way we sort of we've, we, we figured this out, sort of figured out the keys to the, to the Moai engine, is that um, the statue is leaning forward for a reason, and it's got a curved base for a reason. And, and this diagram here kind of shows what happens. When it's leaning forward, uh, it rolls on the front edge. So when we had, what we basically used is three ropes, uh, one on each side and one in the back. The one in the back basically kept the statue, you know, at its sort of right on the front edge, right at its tipping point. The, statue, the ropes on the sides pulled it from side to side, and as it get rocks on one side, it wants to fall down forward. And as it falls forward, it actually rocks across the front edge and actually takes a step. And each side to side, it rocks and falls, rocks and falls and moves forward. Um, So once we got it tipped over to the side, what's amazing about this is that because it's rocking on the front edge, there isn't friction, it's rolling on the surface. So the, the energy is conserved. Um, once we got it rocking, people were able to pull with just one arm. It just kept going. I mean, it was just do 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 down no. the street. And, and uh, it could go as, as fast as we could walk. I mean, it was really amazingly easy. We were able to do, uh, move this five-ton statue with just 18 people, and you know, we're terrible at it. You know? <laughs> what do we know about doing this stuff? Um, it, you know, it certainly it didn't take that many people. Um, and we were able to move it uh, 100 meters in about 40 minutes was sort of our fastest. Again, if we were sort of trained like a canoe team, you know, I, I can't even imagine what's, what's possible. It certainly was something, since we could do it, uh, anybody with any training or, you know, heads on their shoulders would have been great at it. And certainly the Rapa Nui people uh, had the heads on their shoulders about this, because they created it. They created these things specifically to do this. And as the statues got larger, they made them more and more in this shape. Because in fact, that became the only way in which you could move a large statue at you. Uh, So in fact, the bigger ones are are more can do, you know, more uh, 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 similar to, to this physics model than the smaller ones themselves. Well, that leaves us with a, some sort of new understanding about statue technology and what it means for Rapa Nui. Uh, statues were moved with just a few number of people. It didn't require trees at all to move them. Trees were irrelevant as far as uh, statues were concerned. Rope was required, of course, but there in fact is a, a plant on the island that grows in disturbed habitats, uh, uh, that is that is, you know, uh, ethnographically used for making so the stuff for rope was clearly there. Um, it was a collaborative activity, I mean obviously a single person couldn't do it, but it was that, that collaboration was clearly you know, something very important uh, uh, because they did a lot of it uh, um, to, to Rapa Nui people. But it, importantly, it was collaborative, but it didn't require a giant organization. There wasn't a chief sitting there saying, you, know, you army of a thousand people, move me giant Moai over here. This was a, a group effort of small groups getting together to do this, clan-sized families uh, probably uh, work moving these statues. Um, And they didn't necessarily have to do it as a full-time basis. One of the things that strikes most people when you come to the island is, you know, a thousand statues, 400 of them moved out of the quarry on this tiny little island that's only 6 by 10 miles. That's completely out of scale with with the island itself. But in fact, if you look at the amount of energy it probably took to move the statues, it is more likely to be in the scale of what the the resources they have in the island rather than out of whack with the island itself. This is probably a part-time effort, not a mania, something (laughs) that people did. Um, Now, this uh, uh, notoriety and attention uh, we got from National Geographic has been great, but it's also had a lot of detractors, as you can might imagine, uh, lots of controversy, um, because it's really challenging a lot of the sort of fundamental basis of what we think about the island, but it's based on the evidence, and this is just what... What we see in the archaeological record—it's uh, not built on some assumptions about things. This is just the, our best explanation. And a lot of this, you know, criticism is really not very scientific or even particularly ethical. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it's been an interesting uh, experience going through this. Um, but you know, we really didn't start. I mean, we have to always make that claim. We didn't start to try to demonstrate. This, this is just the, our best explanation for what the archaeological record, uh, why the archaeological record is the way it is. Yeah, the important thing is that it
2: really comes out of the evidence. It wasn't our idea about how to move them. It was a necessary explanation for the evidence that we had. Well, that's pretty exciting, moving Moai, but uh, we'd also like to, to make the argument that uh, moving the ancient statues was not, in fact, the greatest achievement of this isolated island society. Instead, I think of particular interest to this audience, It was creating a sustainable society that survived in a difficult place for more than five hundred years before contact with the outside world. On a really difficult piece of land in the middle of nowhere, greatly isolated, people were trapped, and in 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 this isolation and in this difficult environment, they had to be really careful and resourceful managers of what they had. Well, evidence from elsewhere in Polynesia uh, tells us that the Easter Islanders arrived in their new home with a tradition of carving statues and building platforms and maybe moving some of them some distances. Um, statues like the Tiki of the Marquesas that we see in this slide, uh, the monuments and statues that we find on the Marae, the temples of Tahiti, uh, like the wooden statues and temples of Hawaii, the Heiau. Um, They're found in many parts of Polynesia, and they embody religious ancestral traditions. Well, sailing uh, more than 2,000 miles from central Polynesia, the colonists of Rapa Nui would have brought this idea with them. They would have thought, when we arrive at a new location, we will honor our ancestors and carve images of them and put them in religious settings. Well, of course, the colonists who discovered Rapa Nui would have probably been pretty happy when they discovered it. This isolated land is in the middle of nowhere, as we said. It's also in a a colder, more turbulent part of the southeastern Pacific. Um, So discovering the island would have really been a happy moment, I'm sure. But they would have been a little disappointed when they examined this new home. As we mentioned, unlike other islands of Polynesia, there are no permanent streams. Um, The Islanders would soon learn that uh, agriculture was going to rely only on rainfall. Um, irrigation that's so productive in other parts of Polynesia where people grow taro and irrigated fields was not an option. Uh, agriculture was going to have to be based just on rainfall and it's an island with difficult conditions with soil and uh, wind erosion etc. Over time uh, they would also learn that uh, Uh, Drought was a problem, etc. So it was a really difficult island, and this would take time to to realize. Well, they would also find more bad news because the waters around Rapa Nui are not particularly rich with marine life. Um, Our excavations on the island showed that uh, the fish that people were eating was mostly small, near-inshore fish. Uh, Large pelagic fish such as tuna, that we enjoy so much today, were really missing in the archaeology. And we wondered why that was the case. Um, Why didn't they go deep-sea fishing? Well, it seems that that option was taken from them. Even though the island had a dense forest, it was a forest of palm trees. And if you know palm trees, you know that they have a thin, brittle bark and a big, spongy, kind of fibrous interior, and you can't carve canoes out of palm trees. So they never really had... um, the raw material for carving deep-sea-going vessels. So once the vessels that they arrived on were no longer uh, seaworthy, the islanders really had no more deep-sea fishing. It also meant that once they no longer had canoes, they could no longer uh, leave in search of another place to live. Unless they returned on the same boats that brought them to the island, the ancient Rapa Nui people uh, would have no next opportunity. There was no other choice. They would have to make things work on this island, um, or they would suffer, perhaps even die. Well, with that as the background, the statues, of course, suggest something pretty dramatic unfolded. Um, And we would really begin to ask, how did people sustain themselves on this island, this difficult island? And these were the answers that we would then try to answer as we proceeded in our research. Over field seasons in 2004, 2005, and 2006, We excavated at the Anakena Dune on the north shore of Rapa Nui. Um, Here's a kite photo of that that area where we're excavating. You can see in the upper part of the slide, um, not the uh, black rectangle area, that's an area where we thought we were going to work, so we erected a windbreak. But we're over there to the uh, the other side. You can see uh, the Ahu there and the shadows of the statues near the lower part of the photo. Excavating there, we would discover, uh, to our surprise, that the evidence was very clear that the island was not occupied in 400 or 800 AD, as Jared Diamond and others had supposed. In fact, the island was first settled around 1200 AD. The the occupation on the island was much shorter. And we began to uh, think, if something as fundamental as the chronology is that far off, uh, what else might be? And we began to realize that there were lots of surprises coming. Um, as we really did the basic scientific research. One of them, for example, was that um, there were a lot of rat bones in our excavations. Here are uh, our students working on the screens, recovering those samples. Well, evidence from the Hawaiian Islands around the same time um, helped us understand what might have happened on Rapa Nui. Before the arrival of the Polynesians in Hawaii, the lowlands of the islands were covered in a uh, dense, Uh, native palm forest. Palms look like this. Um, And once the Polynesians arrived, the the Hawaiian palm forest disappeared very rapidly. Um, Within probably just a few decades, uh, the palm forest had crashed. We know this from pollen evidence. Um, And many archaeologists had long blamed Polynesians arriving, setting the islands on fire to clear land for agriculture, Um, But what the evidence would show was that these palm trees were disappearing in the absence of fire. We would see the frequencies in the pollen uh, disappear, the forest crashed, and the charcoal evidence in the sedimentary records, like in a small lake where you get all these things nicely uh, layered and you can reconstruct those events, um, fire was uh, following the deforestation and it was of kind of whatever happened to be left. Well, it seems that the Pacific rat, ratus exelons, um, had, who that had arrived in Hawaii with the first Polynesian colonists uh, had a significant impact on the island's vegetation. Once on shore, these rats would uh, enjoy an environment that was free of predators and an environment full of native fruits and seeds. And unlike rats, uh, excuse me, unlike birds, uh, rats have teeth. They consume the hard, thick seed cases and they destroy the reproductive potential of the native plants. As rats devoured the seeds of the next generation of native plants, um, the forest would be sort of the reforestation, the regeneration of that forest would be stopped in its tracks. Older trees would die, younger trees would grow at much slower rates, and it was kind of a losing battle. Um, And rats were really the first invasive species in the islands uh, and they had a um, swift and devastating impact. Well, the implications for Rapa Nui were startling. And during our first excavations, we'd recovered an abundance of rat bones and they really seemed to follow a sequence of uh, increasing in great numbers and then falling until today uh, the rat is gone, replaced by the black rat and the Norway rat introduced by Europeans. But now we could really put two and two together. If rats played a huge role in the deforestation of the Prochardia palms of the Hawaiian Islands, think of the impact that they could have uh, when rats reached tiny Rapa Nui, where there was a single yet highly vulnerable, a simple yet highly vulnerable ecosystem that was dominated by these uh, slow growing, slow reproducing palm trees with edible nuts. Well, the evidence is there. The uh, vast majority of the nuts recovered on the island show the destruction by rats. And what's interesting is laboratory studies show us that under normal conditions, uh, rats can breed at staggering rates. They double their numbers every 47 days. Uh, a, a pair, a mating pair of rats, can become a population of millions in just a couple of years. Um, given Rapa Nui's size, we think if we sort of look at normal densities for Pacific Islands, we're talking about two to three million rats, uh, which would take a very short time, take a very short time to reach that number. Well, if rats could destroy the palm forests of Hawaii, uh, we knew that they must have had a serious impact on the Rapa Nui forest dominated by Jubea palms. Here's kind of the smoking gun: the uh, the view of a Jubea nut from Rapa Nui with the incisor marks of a rat. Well, add uh, add fire to this mix of Polynesians clearing land, and Polynesians could complete what rats started. Rats are depressing the regeneration of forest. Polynesians are burning to release nutrients from palm trees, planting crops, et cetera. They transformed a natural environment into an agricultural environment, the burning would provide the short-term release of nutrients that the poor soils of Rapa Nui needed so desperately. Well, in terms of biodiversity, the loss of forest was an ecological catastrophe. It was. But in human terms, there's really no evidence that the forest provided much of what people needed. In fact, uh, the forest was kind of in the way. As long as there were trees, there would be rats preying upon those seeds, uh, there would be Trees in the way of agricultural uh, fields, and so the gradual loss of the forest opened up more land for cultivation of staple crops such as taro and sweet potatoes. So
1: this this idea about the the transformation of the of the environment from a natural forest into sort to to this post human contact one really becomes one of a transformation from a you know sort of a nat this this Ecology that was evolved over a couple hundred thousand years uh, into one that was very human oriented. I mean, it wasn't. It's a it's a big change, but it not quite the catastrophe from a human perspective that that is often associated with that. There's still a bunch of big questions though about this. So 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 this happened. So this people didn't. You know uh, this destroy their environment. The the change of the environment wasn't really about leading to destruction of people. Uh, It was really more about transformation towards uh, an environment that could support people. Uh, But then what what role did statues play? Because before statues were tightly involved with destruction of the environment and the craziness that people were doing. Now it seems like people are doing something sensible, turning this island into something that can support them. In fact, the fewer the trees that were available, the better it was for people that were living there. Uh, Because the more area that was exposed for doing what Polynesians do, uh, which is cultivate land for sweet potatoes and taro and other kinds of uh, 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 crops. So what role did these statues play? Because clearly there are a lot of them. And and while they have connections clearly with other Polynesian islands, there's a 1,000 of them and they're gigantic. Um, So why was this such an intense interest and commitment to statues here? Uh, you have to remember, some of the biggest statues that were moved, that were actually moved and successfully moved, were as, lo- as heavy as a 747, unloaded 747. I mean, these things are massive, 70 tons in size, huge. So, and there are nearly 1,000 of these statues. It's just, you know, so okay, what's going on there? Well, in many ways, as we start to look at, looking at statues and start to look at, well, people are doing this Changing their world in ways that actually are leading towards their, you know, improving their environment uh, for themselves, not, not necessarily for uh, the palm trees certainly. Uh, so why, Mr. Rapa Nui is really misunderstood. In fact, we made a lot of mistakes ourselves, and it took us a long time to sort of realize some of these misunderstandings. When we looked across the island, when we first got there, we were like. Man, this is a terrible place to walk around. It's covered with rocks. What are the, This is awful. In fact, we always worried about the field school students that we brought with us, and we were doing survey because it was like walking on billiard balls. You know, and we were like, oh man, we better get high boots and you know, hidden in grass. Hidden in yeah. grass. Yeah. So it was just the worst case scenario. And you're looking at pieces of paper and walking around, and <laughs> we we're like, oh man, we're going to get in trouble here. Uh, and, and we thought this is what's you know, this is a terrible environment. You know, no wonder they were depressed. Rapa Nui people, uh, <laughs> we're trying to walk around all the time. But it turned out when we started to look at these really carefully, um, we realized that th- these weren't natural features. There's nothing that could explain them in, in a natural sense. They're not erosion features. They're not geological outcrops of stuff. In fact, it turns out that these things were very consistent in size. Uh, they blanketed large areas uh, that they are made culturally. People did this. It's part of removing the the, the trees, they also started to change the landscape itself to engineer it in order to uh, uh, make it more sustainable for them. Uh, and what, what we see in this landscape isn't a devastated landscape. That's our European glasses on. where we see bunches of rocks in a field, that's a terrible place. We need to get rid of those fields and put them in the walls, and, you know, just like we good Europeans do. Uh, but in fact, these, these rocks are actually purposely created and put on the landscape uh, for, uh, uh, for the subsistence, e- even though these rocks are billions in numbers. Um, and what this really is about is it's called lithic stone mulching, uh, it's lithic mulch. Uh, rock mulch or lithic mulch is, is a way of, of cr- creating fresh surfaces of rock, uh, putting it on the surface and inside the ground in order to expose it, uh, fresh rock, uh, for, for um, uh, exposing the, the ground to, to more nutrients. This soil is, is a volcanic soil, it's a relatively old extinct volcano, uh, that's on the order of 200 to a million years old. Uh, these soils are very weathered um, and, in fact, have very low soil nutrients, nitrogen, potassium, uh, and phosphorus. Um, in, in order to um, make it a productive landscape, you've actually got to increase the productivity of, that, of, that, of the land. What you can do is, is sort of a two. what the Easter Islanders did was sort of a two-step thing. First they burned the trees down. The trees themselves had nutrients locked into them because they had absorbed by growing over this long period of time. Uh, and those were returned back into the soil, and then people grew off of those. But once the trees were, were gone because rats were eating them uh, and the, the slow rate of growth wouldn't allow them to, to regenerate, um, they had to actually seek other ways of enriching the soils and what they did was lithic mulch, uh, breaking open rocks and creating fresh surfaces uh, exposed the the ground for more, enabled more nutrients to go into the ground, thus increasing the amounts of uh, potassium, phosphorus uh, and nitrogen enough to grow sweet potatoes. They made it sufficiently capable of growing sweet potatoes. So what we're seeing on the landscape is, is the opposite of a devastated landscape, but an engineered landscape created to to, to, make, sustainable, uh, for, to make a sustainable place that could support these populations. Uh, this is a really different kind of uh, road to success than we're ordinarily familiar with, but it's one that makes perfect sense in, in the context of Rapa Nui. And of course
2: Europeans seeing fields of rocks would see exactly the, the wrong thing. They would see this as, uh, as Carl was saying, kind of a terrible place rather than an engineered environment where you could grow crops. Well, the returning to the arguments of Diamond and others has come down to two points: that failure on Rapa Nui would be the result of reckless overexploitation and overpopulation that would lead to collapse. Well, our argument comes down to the same two points: that success is the result of careful use of the environment, really management of the environment, combined with keeping population uh, numbers in check, leading to what we talk about today as a sustainable society. Well, we know that Dutch explorer Jacob Roggeveen, who discovered the island for Europeans, estimated uh, the population in 1722 somewhere between three and 4,000 people. The question then is, you know, not 15,000 or 30,000 or whatever uh, people have speculated about. So the question becomes, how did the ancient islanders uh, hold their population at a sustainable level, a level sustainable for the island? Well, we believe they did so by forming a society that in multiple ways optimized long-term stability over immediate returns. This, this idea of... of, of
1: of um, look building you know building your society around something that is uh, sustainable or looking at the long term um, uh, really makes you think about reimagine what East Ireland must have been like. Um, now, people may not have designed it this way it 's just that turns out in order to, for them to have persisted over the length of time that they did, which is about five hundred years until european contact, and that in fact People, the Rapa Nui people living today, in order to have done that on this island that is so small, uh, that is so remote, and has so few resources, they had to have done what they did, which was create a sustainable environment. Not having done that, they wouldn't have made it to, to uh, European con- contact. Remember, there is no co- prehistoric collapse. Collapse is a function of European arrival and disease. The, the success of the population depends on the fact that they had to have done it in a way that was sustainable. And the way this happened is that they, were, they did it in a su- sufficient way, sufficiently so that they could persist. Um, what, what we find is all the traditions, that the actions that they took um, were not ones that, that tended to maximize success for any particular moment but ultimately maximize or stabilize yields. In other words, return yields on crops, return yields on their effort over, that would be sustainable over the long run. So they, they traded off getting as much as they could out of a landscape at any moment in time for year after year returns. And on an island, this is going to be really important because you there's no other place to go. So if you if you maximize your returns and you're accounting for maximized returns the next year and it doesn't happen, there isn't any other place you can go. So the only strategies that are going to have worked are the ones that in fact were the ones that 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 ensured that there was a reliable return year after year. <clears throat> so what what um uh what we we see here is that that what Rapa Nui people were doing uh, was pursuing a strategy that even Jacob Roggeveen, the Dutch captain who arrived in 1722, an observation that he made down, that's what Rapa Nui people were doing, that Rapa Nui could be made into an earthly paradise if it was properly worked and cultivated, uh, which is now only done so far as the in, inhabitants are obliged for the maintenance of life. Well, from a European perspective, we see you know, European, the Rogeveen was saying, well, why aren't these people doing more? Why aren't they busily out making more farms and growing more food? Why are they just sort of lazing about and not maximizing their return? Well, it turns out on Rapa Nui, in order to be, have the maintenance of life, you actually have to not do that and, 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 and trade off reliable returns for maximizing those returns. Maintenance of life for Rapa Nui is, in fact, avoiding the roller coasters of surpluses and shortages and and attempting to keep a sustainable yield. Something that's going to be absolutely essential on an island environment that's isolated and you can have no other places to go with limited resources. Now, um, uh, the the, the elaborate statue cult, we think, played into this as well. So to sort of understand the the agricultural base, subsistence base of this population, um, there's a link now to statue construction. Statue construction, um, provided an, it was an alternative activity that people did and invested in uh, that that was different than investing in growing more food. Um, it pro- it was something that ultimately s- provided a mechanism for not for something else, doing something else, than maximizing uh, 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 pr- production of food, and ultimately. Uh, they, uh, supporting more people. This is really just a trade-off, and biologists talk about this all the time, that you know, if you do one thing and not another, uh, you're making trade-offs about what, you're gonna, what, you, what the return is, what the investment is. Statue carving was an activity that took time and resources away from tending gardens and away from food production, um, and that ultimately uh, uh, reduced the size of the population they gave. They, 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 because they weren't maximizing every square inch of the, of, of the land. They were focusing on reliable returns. Uh, populations were ultimately lower than they, than, than, than they could have been for some short period of time. Rapa Nui just made those trade-offs, trade-offs. In fact, evolution enforced that the case. Because they were successful, those trade-offs had to have been made in order for them to have persisted as long as they did. Uh, and this is a concept that's you know, common in biology, uh, this kind of trade-off between time and energy.
2: Well, as we mentioned, a, a tradition of statue carving uh, was already established in Polynesia. People have been doing this, worshipping their ancestors for a long time. And imagine this religious, uh, this tr- re- this religious uh, system made sense. Imagine what their view might have been if we talked to them. We build statues and monuments to our ancestors because it's the right thing to do. Don't you build monuments for your ancestors? This, uh, this cultural, even religious, rationale uh, had the unintended consequences of diverting, this is what Carl was talking about, diverting time and energy away from larger gardens, more investment in food production, and the consequent larger families, which the limited resources of the island really could not support, could not possibly sustain. So honoring your ancestors, appeasing the gods, following your traditions, had big evolutionary payoffs. It was the right thing to do.
1: One way of talking about this is, 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 you know, a common term, bet hedging. Uh, biologists, economists, stockbrokers, all kinds of insurance people talk about bet hedging. A decrease in short-term gains for long-term ones. Uh, people hedge their bets against environmental fluctuations all the time in lots of ways. And we think that's really what the essential sustainable strategy on East Island must have been. This kind of bet hedging, sacrificing uh, uh, small you know, sacrificing the short-term for the long-term, uh, basically insuring against the big losses. Because when it was bad on the island, you had no alternatives. They were forced to deal with this fact and, and couldn't have done it any other way, uh, whether they liked it or not. Um, so this, overall, this provides a very different perspective on the island itself. What we see here is, is an island that... Um, is in balance with, with the, the scale of it, the, its remoteness, the resources, that people are doing the things that they need to do in order to survive, uh, and they're doing it successfully. Uh, collapse and catastrophe occurs only as a result of disease. Um, and, and we're doing this on the basis, and we hope we're presenting this, on the basis of the, of the evidence that we're seeing in the record. Uh, that we're not trying, you know, we didn't start trying to say like, you know, that this must be the case, and let's look for that, but this is just what we're, we're seeing and we're trying to explain why that is, again repeat what we talked about the statues. Our research has really revealed that the the islanders themselves were not reckless. They weren't crazy. They did exactly the right thing. They did the things that they needed to do to survive. They avoided collapse on this small, poor, and isolated island. Um, This is a remarkable achievement. I mean, as as Terry mentioned before, it's even more incredible than the statues themselves. Being able to have solved these problems on this incredibly remote place as long as they did is one of the most remarkable achievements of all. Uh, Collapse only came when when disease arrived and was introduced by the outside world. Uh, Collapse is not something that occurred to them. So we can sort of think about Israel and broadly and and sort of generate a couple of, of lessons that we can take away here. First of all, well, one thing we want to make sure everyone is, <clears throat> is clear on: there was never a prehistoric laugh. We said that over and over again, uh, but that there just isn't any evidence for that. We're not uh, there, there was just there was no, nothing that was just an assumption about the way things must have been. It's not based on evidence. Uh, Rapa Nui is is a story of success. Um, oops, yeah. So yeah, Rapa Nui is a success story. It isn't a story of failure. Um, what, what matters here is history matters. It, it's, the, it's the stuff that people brought with them that provided the fodder for evolution to, to act on that allowed the success. They happen to have had strategies or, or behaviors and strategies in their repertoire of stuff as Polynesians that turned out to be very useful on this particular island and led to their success. It didn't have to be that way. Different people bringing different things may not have led to the same outcome. We can actually look at other Pacific islands uh, and see, in fact, other outcomes happen. If people bring irrigated farming or if you can find an island that has, uh, supports irrigated farming, you end up finding lots of warfare and lots of competition over land. On Easter Island, that environment didn't allow that to happen. Uh, if you br- some islands didn't bring statues as a tradition. On those islands, those kinds of behaviors, couldn't. then there wasn't anything for selection to act on, thus there, there were different outcomes. On the Easter Island, the, the ingredients that were brought with them culturally uh, enabled them to, to, to be successful. Statues really did the job of success. And that's important. Evolution works only on what's available. Uh, what is in the environment today is what selection is going to act on in the future. And it's going to act on what's local in that environment. Uh, local constraints are going to shape uh, uh, the future based on the, the variability that's uh, present at any point in time. In the case of Rapa Nui, this was the variability that they brought with them that turned out to have the right ingredients for success. Long-term success or sustainability means for you know, sort of, if we're thinking about well, what are we going to do about the future? How can we help ensure that we have the right stuff so that we can encounter whatever whatever the future is going to hold? Well, key in that is is variability. The promotion of variability uh, in the present is the only way in which we're going to have stuff to cope with the un, uh, future uncertainty. If anything, we know the future is uncertain. We just don't know what it's going to be. The best thing we can possibly do is promote that variability because we don't know what's going to be successful. If we replayed in, in the Easter Island case, it turned out that statues were the way. Who would have funked it that statues were so important? But it turned out to be key to their success and key to their survival. We also need to see that in envir- whenever envir- uh, st- the environment or the future is unpredictable, strategies that minimize variance or risk are key to that survival survival. survival, not looking for the greatest return, trying to find reliable returns over uh, uh, short-term gains has a cost, but has a long-term payoff, and that long-term vision is really what uh, enables success over in unpredictable environments.
2: So today we've offered quite a a different perspective on what happened on Rapa Nui, and and we think that good science requires uh, that we critically evaluate our our ideas in light of evidence. We can't just make stuff up. Our research has revealed that the ancient islanders were not reckless, they were not crazy, Um, they did exactly the right thing. They avoided collapse on a small, poor, and isolated island. And as we've outlined tonight, the only collapse came with the diseases introduced from the outside world. Well, we think that understanding the past and getting it right has much to offer in knowing who we are and where we are headed in these most challenging of times. We think here that the tiny, yet very special island of Rapa Nui offers a message from the past for our future. Thank you very much, and we'd like to thank Stuart Brand and Long Now Foundation. Thank you. Let's go sit back I think our water is here.
0: Short guy, tall guy, me. Oh, thank you. Nika's is Eco. No, this is the short guy. Okay, how's sound? Sound is good. Sounds good for you guys? Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Um, how's this story playing on Easter Island with the Rapa Nuians? Well, uh, it's been really rewarding because the, the
2: islanders, uh, in a sense, knew the part about the statues walking. But they're also mm-hmm. relieved now that uh, someone is really verifying that they did not destroy themselves and destroy their island. And it's, the young people on the island uh, love this. It's very important mm-hmm. for them to sort of have... So uh, instead of
0: being stupid, they're being admired.
2: Yeah, yeah they're geniuses, actually. So mm-hmm. uh, pretty exciting for them. What do they think about moving Moai this way? Well, uh, they're very excited by it. We, the Rapa Nui folks who've seen the film um, have very emotional reactions. Uh, they're very excited. And uh, one, one uh, Rapa Nui man watching the video looked at it, got tears in his eyes, and he said, I can see my ancestors. It has been very moving um, for Rapa Nui people to see this. And we've also, one of our friends who saw the video, started doing a, um, a song that she'd learned from her, her grandmother, when she saw the statue moving, she started doing the song, and she said, we have a song about moving the statues. And you realize that in that, there was sort of a deep cultural memory that was ignited by seeing the video. So it's a really interesting piece of kind of cultural renaissance out of a
1: piece of science. That, that reintroducing or sort of, ta- you know, sort of reevaluating the archeological record and sort of reshaping what their past was, has clearly been, one, I mean, it's been one of the most rewarding Mm-hmm. dimensions of this research. A lot of people don't realize the terrible things that happened to Rapa Nui people yeah. after contact. We talk about this in the book quite a detail. We mention it briefly here. But in addition to you know, disease ravishing the island and all, over and over and over again, um, <clears throat> the island was raided for slaves over and over and over again at a point, and, and um, as, as a result of that, there were people were down to 111 uh, in the late 19th century. Um, at the same time, populations uh, the, in the late 19th centuries, the island was turned into a giant sheep ranch. And the islanders were locked in the town, this tiny little town, this tiny little island, with a wall around it. And they were only let out of the town uh, for about, what, 80 years or so uh, in order to work on the sheep ranch. Yep. Um, and so up until the 1940s, this was like this p- prison for them on their own island. Uh, and, and so th- th- to see them retake their history is really extraordinary, because they, it was really ripped from them. Uh,
0: Peter Schwartz asks, uh, were there uh, Moai races? And I guess my question is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> are, are there going to be Moai races? Uh, we
1: don't know if there were Moai
2: races, but there are going to be Moai yeah, races. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are working on a, a project uh, with some filmmakers and, and donors um, to get the mold from Washington State ship to the island, this is no easy feat, it's a little bit too big for a cargo plane, we're trying to figure that out right now. Um, but we're trying to get the mold to the island, make a statue for the island, because the, the one you saw is in Hawaii, still there, happily standing there, um, but to bring it uh, uh, back to the island and make one or more and really um, bring that back. One of the Rapa Nui people You'd who saw them. need more the film. than one to have races. Well, they wow. have. Yeah, we're gonna. Yeah, and all we need is lots of cement, and the mold, so, yeah. uh, <clears throat> and the mold, and we'll make we'll make matching moai, and we can race them. Um, but one of the one of the Rapa Nui people who saw the video said, "When when people walk the moai again, we will be whole again. We
0: will be united again. So, so maybe there's something in racing them too. Well, it, it, one of the things that intrigued me is how quickly, it looked like your 18 people fell into the heave, yeah. Yeah. ho, yeah. heave, well, yeah, which is, that was developed for that kind of motion, yeah. and there's probably some old Rapanuian words right. for heave yes. and ho. Um, to presumably different size moai would have a different periodicity to the heave, <laughs> ho, <laughs> for the big guys, or not, yeah. I don't know, are they all...
1: Well, no, we actually, we, we start, we're thinking about part of our future research is to do more three-dimensional modeling of more of the road statues because the shape of the, the roundedness of the front edge is going to shape how the steps are, which could create mm. different kind of steps and beats and how it moves. There may be actually, you know, different rhythms of statues that are encoded in the statues themselves that we want to look at. I mean,
0: that's going to be fun. A couple <laughs> of questions from Dad Yaganuma, Michael Grimm, basically all raising uh, Thor Heyerdahl, who, uh, whose book Aku Aku, one guy says, well, that was Rapa Nui word, meaning to walk a heavy object by rocking it back and forth. Um, where does Heyerdahl figure into all
2: this? Yeah, he's thinking of neke neke, which is to move neke, the neke. statue by shuffling a Polish word. Aku Aku refers to spirits. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, Heyerdahl, Heyerdahl did uh, did great work in the 1950s. He He certainly had Uh, a very colored view, and I might use that word really selectively. Um, I mean, I might intentionally use that word. Um, He had a kind of a a racial view of history, um, and one that uh, uh, he had decided really before he looked at evidence. So for him, it was a matter of confirming um, what had happened. And the the, uh, experimental voyages from South America, sort of drifting um, with Kontiki into Polynesia, was really designed to see well, to quote-unquote, prove. Uh, Experiments like that don't prove anything. Um, But he brought good archaeologists to the island and really began modern research on the island. Um, And we were saying earlier, uh, Heyerdahl, with the help of Pavel Pavel, a Czech engineer, Hmm. came the closest to resolving the issue of the statues moving in a vertical position and walking. And he was trying to demonstrate that. In the documentary, if you see on Nova and, and Nat Geo, um, you'll see a film clip of them moving the statue. And what happened is they're moving a platform statue that's already been reshaped. So they've got the wrong shape, and they're kind of grinding it into the ground by twisting it and trying to pull it along the ground. It doesn't have the dynamic motion that the statue that uh, we made
1: had. So Heyerdahl put a dent one in things. The, mm-hmm. One of the, <coughs> unfortunately, Heyerdahl did some really solid archaeology. But from the outset, I mean, one of the reasons why I think that when we got there, we started to see there was a lot, a lot of evidence for uh, a lot of what was said. Probably comes from people, the, the crazy sort of shellac that he added on to all the archaeology mm-hmm. sort of kept people away. Sort of this, mm-hmm. this is a crazy place. True, we don't want to yeah. deal with this. Yep. And unfortunately, that sort of left like a 50-year gap of not much archaeology. And, um, and so a lot of what we were doing was no one had ever bothered to look at some of these things before because there really not much archaeology
0: been done since Hiredall. So you guys dug into the ground. What else do you... Presumably, you or other people are, are now looking for more stuff in the archaeology. What's being looked for?
2: Well, you know, future work uh, really needs to, one, there's an urgent need to document the archaeology before it's gone. It's disappearing rapidly with uh, agriculture, with land being uh, returned for, uh, really being returned to the natives of the island. That's a good thing, but the bad thing is that it's being converted into Farms that only have short-term potential, and meanwhile, the archaeology is lost. So, one of our most urgent uh, uh, objectives for the island is to see everything get documented because it's disappearing rapidly. Beyond that, I mean, we'd like to know more about uh, where people lived and how they made a living. We we understand some of that, but we'd like to see uh, really understand the settlement and look at the dimensions of population more closely. Um, moving bigger statues, building roads, etc we've really scratched the surface and there's so many more details that, that we could look at now. So do, do there's a lot a, to be done.
0: Do you have a sense of, of, the 500 years of the sustainable population and scene they had there, were the Moai there in sort of the mode that you see them later from the beginning or could you get a sense of how that was developed over time?
1: It, the tr- there is some evidence. Of, it looks as though the statues were being made right from the get-go. So that's the first thing we, in really early Little statues. Guys, big guys. They tend to be small, Probably smaller, yeah. Um, yeah. Early on statues are quite variable. They're, they're made out of different materials. Um, there's a couple different sources of rock. So
2: they're or like
0: on the cool. other islands in a sense. They are like the, the other islands. islands. That's a good way of thinking about it. Scoria, red yeah.
2: Scoria. And they're little guys and they're quite variable. And um, then they get bigger and they it, Yeah, the forms into basically, into
1: as, as they become more important in terms of a tool for having groups cooperating, Um, and and providing some benefits, they start to look more alike and and they start to get larger because it it, it looks as though this is one way in which people are mediating competition. People are competing over resources, but on an island like this, Competition can't get violent, because if it gets violent, everyone loses. So you think uh, this
0: was displacement for violent competition?
1: I think effectively this became the way in which they sort of mediated competition over resources, uh, because there had to be some way to solve conflict. And, and it was never and in nobody's best interest to, to escalate conflict.
2: You think about this. It's a little bit like uh, the village soccer game. Mm-hmm. And you're on a small island where you know everyone. You're related to everyone in some way. And you know, ethnographic studies, anthropologists can tell you that in small-scale societies, you, in face face combat, you're rarely killing people who you know you're related to. Um, so the idea that there was chaos and cannibalism and, and endemic warfare, one doesn't make sense from an anthropology anthropologist's point of view. It doesn't make sense from a biological point of view on the ground, and doesn't make sense in terms of the evidence that we see. So if we we see the statues as kind of a friendly competition. It's both competitive and cooperative. So you work with a team, but the other team is gonna see if they can move a bigger statue faster or what have you, back to the Moai races. But uh,
0: it probably mitigated a lot of the kinds of things that could go wrong. And um, does that then get the girls, or? You know, it may. It, the other thing I'm yeah. wondering about is, this is a very small population, and so the possibilities of in, inbreeding depression are enormous, and everybody gets to be Web fingered pretty quickly unless steps are taken. So, what sense do you get of how they manage to keep their own genetic variability up under that circumstance?
1: Well, I think that's. I think mate competition over mates is probably really key. It does look like there's a, a sex imbalance where there's way more men than females. Um, that is documented in the skeletal record. It's documented in the early European accounts. Well,
0: that suggests infanticide or something. It,
1: it probably has some infanticide dimensions to it, but okay. we have no evidence of that. Or there, something some we mechanism. don't understand. Yeah, some, mechanism. some mechanism. And it, so it looks as though there's some competition over mates.
0: Um, so you have fewer children for women if you have fewer women. Yeah. yeah. And so that's yeah. one of the mechanisms
1: of keeping populations down. I mean, yeah. yeah. Hmm. And, sort of con- and, and so that competition over mates gets sort of, by having these competitions allows mates to be exchanged because the competition go is island wide or some kind of you know, w- way in which decisions are being made based on outcomes of whatever yeah, That happens. element of the moai races. And so exactly. you could, you know, my moai is bigger than yours and I can move it faster. I, uh, well, what's amazing about the statues is they get more and more similar in the sense of they all start to look like the canonical statue shape from, from quite dissimilar across the island. And then they get larger and larger. It really, is this as though they're escalating and com- competing and being bigger yeah. and more? And some of them, in case it looks like they take alternative routes, where they move five at a time. You know that that statues like Ahu Now Now is one place in which the statues are more similar to each other than they could be if they were moved one by one, carved and moved, carved and moved. They had to have been sitting side by side during the carving because they're so similar that you had to literally be taking physical measurements and moving them back and forth. So you, you sort of people are competing in different ways to show, you know, to, whether it's larger or, or more or whatever. That
0: so this technique is so efficient, Rob. Robert Carlson asked, "Do you suppose other megaliths were transported by walking them uh, Egyptian uh, obelisks or stonehenge or anything? Probably like not, that?
1: probably not walking, but the principle of using the physics of the object itself is probably key yeah. there's there's some some work that shows. Stonehenge is a great example of a community that's very much like Rapa Nui. It's mm. a dispersed settlement system, low density populations. This isn't a huge pile of people. This is really a, a you know, small village scale thing with populations at low densities. They're moving these objects which are gigantic over long distances, but they're not doing it with you know sledges and dragging them along. They're doing it in a smart way, probably using uh, the center of, of, of mass in order to pivot things. And people have done some demonstrations like this one guy in somewhere out east, has shown that he can move a stone edge sized block uh, by himself with bags of sand and by pivoting it back and forth. Sure, and it's probably yeah. Yeah. P- pretty much what's going on. I mean, I don't know the evidence that supports exactly that, but it's probably some way smart. We, we're the dumb ones that sort of like you crane or 1,000 people. That's our two choices. We, we <laughs> use the hammer. You know?
2: Brains, not brawn. We, we didn't really have a chance in the presentation to tell you that we moved the the statue about 100 meters in 40 minutes. Right. We could turn it around on itself. We moved it uphill, downhill. We got very fast, very good at it. And um, this is in the second episode of Moving Move for a Japanese television company. Hmm. Um, so most of what's in the film is the first time when it was so difficult and we only had an hour left. Uh, months later, we had two full days. We went out there, put the ropes in the right position, started moving it. And about 20 minutes into it, it's walking back and forth. And Carl and I looked at each other and I said, this could get boring. Um, <laughs> Because it it was so easy, and and we realized how easy it was when you had the right design and you knew what you were doing.
1: And we did everything we could not to move that statue. I mean, we're like, come on, we we don't really have to do this, because we figured it's going to just fall down and break into five pieces or crush somebody, Um, and it would just be a failure, and we'd look dumb on TV. Um, And so we tried everything we could do, but now, I mean, really seeing it, like the way it's built, it's so made to do this that we, you know, I don't think moving a 30-foot version, which I don't even know how you would put it on a truck and a crane to and even begin it to move it, because it would weigh 60 tons. Um, but I don't think, I mean, it's certainly conceivable to do it. I, I don't think, it's just a matter, because it doesn't actually take, it wouldn't take like 20 times more people to do it, because in fact, as the statues get taller, bigger, they get taller, and as they get taller, there's more leverage, so it's easier to get them rocking. So mm-hmm. that it actually scales fairly well with, um, with with the size. So I think it's yeah. actually possible. The hard part would actually be finding you know, for us, a place to put the concrete together in a, you know, and then put it on a truck
0: to move it someplace <laughs> to do it. I don't know how. There's a lot of makers in the Bay Area. <laughs> 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 we could dig a deep hole somewhere. No, right? I, no. you know, just, let's just do it. Um, couple questions, Michelle, Danielle, and, and me about the trees. Um, as you may know, the Long Now Foundation has a, a project within it called Revive and Restore about bringing back extinct species. And so far, there's lots of candidate animals, mostly birds. Um, there's no candidate plants and, you know, as the passenger pigeon is kind of an iconic extinct bird, it sounds like the, this amazing palm tree that was on Easter Island is kind of a candidate to de-extinct if, if that can be done. And, and you know, you're not going to rebuild the forest on the whole island because there's still agriculture to do there, it sounds like. Uh, but are there efforts or there's there interest in, in bringing the forest the original palm forest back to Easter Island. Yeah,
2: one of the there are a few uh, a few palm trees uh, brought from the mainland. Um, the the related or, or Chilean wine palm. Yeah, it's Chilean yeah. wine palm or, or Jubaea chilensis. Um, we don't really know if it's a different species that went extinct on the island. Um, there's a lot of variability in the mainland. The endemic species on the mainland. So the question might be where does the wh- what's the genetic variation in the extinct palm on the island? Does it fit within what we see on the mainland or would we really have to call it a different species? Which would then have implications for what happens next. Uh, but the palm is, is slow growing. Um, when it takes uh, 50 to 70 years just to start to produce uh, seed and reproduce, and very slow growing, the little palm tree that's been in the airport for 20 years is still a little palm <laughs> tree, and so uh, people are a little
0: discouraged by that. Well, the long now, you know, we yeah. step <laughs> up so to the, like the bigger that. perspective, <laughs> yes. Uh, Those uh, inevitable questions from January, from Alan Kay, from Andrew and others, uh, basically all asking how has Jared Diamond reacted to the, your debunking <laughs> of ecocide? I, I wish we could say... I
1: wish we could say. I, uh, Next question. <laughs> I wish we could say graciously, uh, yeah. I wish we could say sort of in, interested in, in this perspective based on the archaeological record. Uh, based on science. Based on science. <laughs> but it hasn't been quite what we would have hoped. Understandable, I mean, people, you know, we see this a lot. There are Easter Islander researchers, other researchers who, you know, still hold, you know, don't believe what we have to say holding their own. This is the way science works. People attach their ideas, uh, don't want to let it go. Ultimately this gets sorted out. I mean, our our argument may not work out. We may be, you know, the evidence that we see, we may find out new things that people were there a thousand years earlier and that changes everything. But at the moment, that's our best explanation. Uh, We'll just have to see as we generate more data. Um, that's the way the science dialogue needs to go.
0: They're being very gracious here. Jared's been, uh, I'm aware of some of the byplay going on and phone calls to National Geographic and so on. Jared's been pretty tough on this. Um, it'll all sort out because um, science moves on with evidence and you guys have great evidence. Finishing up, the, the, the image I get here, I hadn't really realized that when they arrived, In a sense, they burned their boats. Because if the palm trees couldn't be used to make boats to go back 2,000 miles to the island they came from, Mm -hmm. saying, oops, or 3,000 miles to carry on to South America, uh, they really, really were stuck. And so they must have been fabulously happy to have arrived anywhere under those circumstances. And then the, the news must have become pretty crushing of this is it, folks. And it's small. It's barren. It's basically a desert island, as near as I can tell. It's remote from absolutely anywhere. And these guys feel like our first extraplanetary colonists—people who actually went to another planet, in a sense. It's like the one-way trip to Mars. And and this place is about as fertile as Mars, as near yeah, as I can probably. tell. Yeah, uh, probably. And if you know. If, I were looking at the future of space colonization, I'd be looking at this Rapa Nui story as one example of humans who've already done it uh, under basically impossible circumstances, and yet they pulled it off. And it's a sort of a, humans will find a way, life will find a way, uh, and things get weird. (laughs) (laughs) Moai and stuff like that. Are these guys our, our first uh, space travelers? That's a that's a wonderful uh, way
2: of thinking about it. I, as you were talking, I'm thinking, they arrive on this difficult island and they're basically stuck there, and they really said, uh, "Man, we better get help from the ancestors. Uh, we better oh, worship them, and we better pay attention to having their." Essence their you know their spiritual power around us as much as possible. So build those big statues. Uh, the idea in Polynesia is that these images are the place that the ancestors, the spirits inhabit, and that is the way that you commune with them. And so uh, they really turn to religion, if you will. Um, that has some interesting modern you know parallels, but uh, perhaps they were clinging to their religion um, as as space travelers. Carl, yeah, I think what do the you space.
1: Think? I think that's a good, good analogy and sort of uh, we I can imagine the same kinds of things happening to a, in a you know, sort of moving to outer space. A lot of people sort of think that Easter, you know, when people got to this remote island that they got there by chance and just barely made it, you know, hanging onto a log. But our evidence that we, when we started looking at the chronology of, of colonization, it's clear that the model that we have about traditional you know, sort of people accidentally finding things or barely making it isn't right. These people at 12, in the 12th century were, really like space travelers exploring the edges of their universe. Mm -hmm. And they were going as Mm -hmm. far as they could go before they were going to some islands that are in between. So we actually see uh, Polynesians in sub-Antarctic islands uh, before you find them in places like New Zealand. So because the the canoes that they had, the technology they had was really good. They were able to go reliably 2,000 miles and then go back and say, let's go see what's out there, and then sail back. And they did this reliably, and there's a lot of exuberance around that. But the problem with space travel, that kind of thing, is that the exuberance doesn't last, because it's expensive. You know, you're taking all these resources, dumping in these canoes, and f- supplying them. And then over time, as you find the boundaries of the livable world, the payoffs decrease. And so these colonists that first get there are part of this big, you know, exciting, wow, we're on this new place, and you know, there's going to be more. But of course, over time, they're fewer of those, and then people stop showing up, or no one ever That's goes there again. That's yeah. so, interesting. People stop showing up. So that exuberance sort of, you know, it, wow. it, it gets them there to begin with, but then they're sort of like, what, wait, we're here, you know? <laughs> Anyone's anybody can come back here? And no one did, because the payoffs were just so, you know, oh, as it dropped we, off. We
2: imagine the modern version might be, hey, I've got a, I've got a nice boat here. Uh, story is if we get to the island of Tahiti, belongs to us. And the, the payoff would be huge, uh, voyaging and kind of discovering places that no one had discovered before. And then you and your family own this island. Um, but once you set sail and all you do are find islands that are already occupied, the payoff is gone. The homestead process is over, all the lands taken. And at that point, there may still be a little bit of, you know, gee, isn't there any place left? Every place we go has people. And so really that investment in voyaging is gone, it's, it disappears. Um, but what Carl's talking about is a whole other topic. It's fantastic what happens very quickly, uh, very rapid discovery and, and, and expansion across you know, a huge portion of our planet.
0: I've just completely re-understood the Pacific Ocean as space. Yeah. Thank, you so <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.